The oath that I have solemnly taken tonight means at its core that I will do my job without any fear or favor and that I will do so independently of both the political branches and of my own preferences. Oh, hold up a second. I, I, let me just see a show of hands. How many people here have secret Chinese bank accounts? Forget him for a minute. No, but you your start with me. Your president. And Excuse me, Leslie, you started with me. Your first statement was, are you ready for tough questions? Are you? That's no way to talk. I think it's really important for everybody to vote. And if we can do it from space, uh, then I believe folks can do it from the ground, too. And guys, I'm happy that astronauts can vote. But America has to ask itself about its priorities when it's easier for a white lady in space to cast her ballots than an old black lady in Georgia. All right. Yes, those are the voices uh, from the campaign trail, uh, ranging from uh, yes, you, you heard President Obama. You've heard you heard ACB first, but then you heard President Obama. You heard uh, President Trump. Uh, you heard I think her name is Katie Rubin. She's the astronaut who's in the International Space Station and is voted uh, from there. And of course, you heard Trevor Noah, Trevor Noah at the end. Uh, and we have a lot to say today, and we have a great panel. Lucy's off. Uh, she's getting ready for the um, mega All Star. Um, TV special on the election, which I think is tomorrow night. Uh, so joining us today, so I'm your guest host is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and joining us today, we are uh, always excited when we can get Leah wright Rigur, uh, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and the author of The Loneliness of the Black Republican. We are no less excited uh, to have Kevin Rennie, Hartford Current columnist, a former state lawmaker, uh, and now a co-host of Face the State uh, on WFSB, Russell Blair, content editor uh, at the Hartford Current. So, panel, um, I was noticing uh, in Politico, Tim Alberta writing, the good news for Trump supporters is that his position today is similar enough to the one he was in four years ago, trailing badly in the polls, largely left for dead, needing some sort of electoral, electoral miracle to win the election. They saw him defy the odds once. Because of that, they believe he will do it again. And uh, Kevin Rennie, there's a way in which I think political journalists are kind of like that, too. I mean, even though we know the circumstances are vastly different four years later, having lived through 2016, having seen all of the things that are enumerated there and then having seen Trump win, there's a way in which I don't know. Are we overthinking this whole thing as we make it more complicated than it actually looks on the face of it? Yes, I think we are. But I could be per, I, I, I don't think it's likely that I, I'm I'm tragically wrong. But you know, you're but that my saying that is indicate is an, is an indication that uh, you're right. We are all uh, or many of us are still traumatized by the uh, surprise of the two, six, 2016 election. I just think that the uh, Joe Biden's lead has been remarkably steady. And um, and Hillary Clinton was uniquely burdened uh, as a as a presidential candidate. And I I I think Joe Biden's going to win by a convincing margin. You know, it's sort of weird, even the way things were are worded. I got a push notification on my phone this morning about a new I think it's a Washington Post ABC poll. And it says, you know, uh, Biden's lead is big in Wisconsin and narrow in Michigan. Well, he's up seven points in Michigan. Yes, he's up, <laughs> he's up well, 17. Far, uh, that's outside the mar- you know, that's right. outside the margin of error. Right. I, I, 
It's it's only a small lead because he's up 17 points in Wisconsin and because we are all spooked by what happened. Right. Uh, we are he's all... probably not up 17. It's, it's, it is no. more likely that he is up seven in Michigan yeah. than that he is up 17 in Wisconsin. Right. That's a bad that, – there's a pull, pulling problem there. So, Leah, I, I know you think there – well, I mean, I think anybody, anybody with half a brain thinks there is a Trump path to the presidency. Uh, the question, you know, is what how, how big a chance is there that – that he can get on that path and follow it all the way to the pot of gold. But but say a little bit more about how you're seeing this race. So I, I think there's there's an instinctual kind of um, understanding of wanting to to believe the polls, right? Polls keep us keep us comfortable at night, right? They they uh, kind of you know get rid of our anxiety. But I, I've been watching and I've been reading a lot through, you know, 538, through Nate Silver, through, um, you know, the upshot at the New York Times, but also the outlier polls like Trafalgar and things like that. And one of the things that they point out is that polls are snapshot in time and they are subject, you know, to to a wide variety of, of uh, uh, some slippage. Um, and the other thing that I, I, you know, I think is worth thinking about are two things, actually. One is that, you know, it's not... I don't, I don't think it's comfortable for people outside of Trump's kind of diehard supporters to publicly profess their support for the president. So how do you measure, quote unquote, shy voters, right? A lot of pollsters have been trying to figure out how do we measure that? And I think that's something to consider. And I think a lot of the races that we think are kind of, you know, giveaway may in fact be much closer than we give them credit for. Um, and then the second thing is one of the things that we didn't do last time around is really imagine what a Trump presidency would look like because the assumption was out there that, you know, there's no way that this guy is winning, right? There's, it's just not happening. But now we actually know what a president, his presidency would look like. And I think it's worth actually exploring what would a second term of Donald Trump look like in the event that he does pull off a quote unquote upset. Um, but what I see happening right now is that people really don't want to have that conversation. Um, and I think it, that's, you know, that ends up putting us in a position where once again, on election night, we have the possibility of being shocked, surprised, and completely unprepared. Um, maybe we can circle back to that. I'm actually even a little bit afraid of Trump losing in the two and a half plus month interim Yes, to you know, go nuts and kind of wreck everything in sight because uh, he feels rejected. Um, Russell, I want to hear your overall thoughts uh, about what we're talking about, about uh, what's going to happen on November 3rd. But I, I think all of those thoughts are tinctured by another unusual aspect of this election, which is that voting will not take place. Uh, as as it normally does, you know, when you construct yes. a poll, uh, you're sort of assuming that what you find out from likely voters, it doesn't map one to one on what's going to happen on Election Day or we would really know. But there's some obvious through line between what likely voters say they're going to do and then how the votes are going to work this year. I was saying before we went on the air, a lot of us who cover politics have turned into election administration reporters as opposed to horse race report reporters. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, first, just some sort of top line thoughts about this. Uh, one thing I think that's important to consider when we're looking at all the polls here is, as we learned in 2016, it's not just enough to win the popular vote. You know, Hillary Clinton uh, beat Trump by about three million votes. It matters, you know, where what the margins are in the key swing states. And, you know, as you mentioned, there's some good polling for Joe Biden, in some of those key swing states. But I think that's part of why everybody is kind of approaching this uh, very cautiously with some trepidation. And, you know, even a, a double digit lead nationally uh, doesn't really mean anything if 
you know, tens of thousands of voters in, in the key swing states, uh, you know, break towards Trump at the end or, or if, uh, you know, there's an upside in those areas. Uh, one thing that gets, that gets to your point about the process here is that, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of early voting and some strong early voting numbers. Uh, and, and based on what we've seen in Connecticut here, it, it seems that based on the absentee ballot requests and that have been processed and returned, that uh, Democratic and unaffiliated voters are much more likely to uh, participate in early voting or mail-in voting. Uh, you know, part of that may be because Republicans have some skepticism of the process. So I think uh, even with all that early voting going on, you know, you've seen a lot of people pointing to, you know, hey, this county in uh, Florida, you know, a lot of Democrats have, have registered for early voting. Um, you know, there could be a lot of Republicans that don't trust that process and they show up on election day. Um, so I think that's something that, to your point, can be hard to, to capture in a poll. Uh, you know, on the question of the process, um, I think, you know, no Connecticut political reporter has ever been more interested in the absentee ballot process than this year. Uh, certainly that's driven by the fact that uh, the state mailed out absentee ballot applications to, you know, more than 2 million registered voters. Uh, they installed these drop boxes at uh, outside town halls that make it, you know, very easy if you're worried about, you know, whether your ballot's going to get there in the mail or not. Uh, one interesting thing to note is that you can actually look up and see, and I did this yesterday because I mailed my absentee ballot and I saw, you know, the town clerk received your ballot on this date. So there's a pretty sophisticated system there um, to make sure that, you know, your absentee ballot arrives um, and, and gets counted there. Uh, the one thing that I'll be most interested in on, on election night in Connecticut is uh, how long does it take to count all these ballots? I mean, uh, Kevin knows this well, uh, you know, he has relationships with town clerks, but this is a monumental undertaking that's going on here in the state. We're seeing, you know, levels of absentee ballots that we've never seen before. Um, I was reading a story in the Record Journal this morning where, you know, the town clerks were saying, uh, you know, this is going to be a multi-day process to count all these ballots. And while that might not matter for, you know, the presidential election in Connecticut or maybe even some of the congressional contests, uh, you know, it could matter for some of these uh, state legislative races, local races that could come down to a handful of votes uh, one way or the other. So one thing I'm wondering here is, uh, you know, are there going to be people that lose close races and try to mount some kind of challenges based on sort of this unprecedented number of absentee ballots and, and how that's all being handled? Well, you know, Kevin, you know, the, that idea, too, that this is uh, a race that involves uh, at the national level, you know, maybe 150 million uh, votes uh, this time around if, if turnout really surges uh, and early voting surges. Nonetheless, as Russell is just suggesting, a lot of it devolves down to these tiny little offices of, of town clerks who not only have to count all the ballots, but they sort of have to keep an eye on things. I think uh, in your excellent Daily Ructions blog, uh, you found, was it Weathersfield where there was somebody posting a thing about how you can yes. vote twice yeah t tell that yes. story yeah yes so a a voter in weathersfield um had uh, i guess moved and married and um had received an absentee ballot under her previous name and address and um cast it the somehow the town clerk and town clerks are a, they are among connecticut's most competent public servants somehow caught it and uh, and provide it and and was able to have the voter cast in a the right ballot under the right name and the right address, um, and so when the voter got their second ballot, uh, for some reason uh, took a selfie and and suggested that you could vote twice in Connecticut, and it was uh, you know it was one of those things that started getting a lot of attention and undermines 
the uh, confidence in the system, in our system. And, you know, the whole point of it was, no, you can't vote twice in Connecticut. That's the, <laughs> that's, that was the logical conclusion of, of what had happened. Um, also, I would, you know, a lot of town clerk's offices are limiting the hours that they perform their normal duties. They have extra people working and they are devoting a lot more time to uh, efficiently logging in and verifying uh, absentee ballots, which they will then hand over to the registrars of voters next week for um, them to count. Yeah. I want to quickly, just because I forget to say it uh, right after Russell, I want to make the point that uh, Russell uh, very accurately and importantly said that you can sort of check on the health of your ballot. It's the Secretary of State's office is where that um, there's yes. a little there's a little widget there where you you type in your info and they tell you, yes, we got your ballot. We we took it to the movies. You know, we did whatever we did with it. So, um, Leah, this the thing, the story that Kevin just said and talked about and that idea of undermining confidence. I mean, you know, when we're being lazy about this, we think about elections as uh, you and I are both candidates. We try to get people to vote for us instead of for the other person. But another part of running an election can be getting people to not vote uh, for a myriad reasons. Uh, and this is something that you wrote about recently, that Donald Trump has been unusually candid at times about how helpful he finds uh, it if black voters don't turn out a at all. Say a little bit more about this for us. Sure. And it's it's not just black voters. It's also, um, uh, you know, women voters. It's also college students. And so in 2016, the Trump campaign was unusually open. And in fact, they've been unusually open in 2020 about saying that they want to dis uh, discourage, uh, you know, certain voter groups, black voters, uh, college students and women from going to the polls. Why? Because those groups are reliably Democratic and reliably, reliably Democratic voters, um, you know, is is something that a Republican candidate doesn't want. So what we're seeing, though, is something called voter depression, right? So everybody knows about voter suppression. It's the, you know, intimidation at the polls. It's blocking polling places. And all of that matters and all of that is important. But voter depression is a little bit harder to track because it's a bit more nuanced. It's a kind of a three strata strategic approach, right? So one, you convince voters that they're underappreciated and poorly served by uh, their preferred party, right? So saying, you know, there are tensions and we're going to exploit that. These, this party has never done anything for you. So you might as well not vote for them. But then the second part is by uh, is making symbolic kind of gestures to these voters to counter accusations that, hey, you might be intolerant or you might be racist or you might be exclusionary. And then the last part is eroding their overall faith in the electoral process. So it's not about necessarily voting for, say, Donald Trump, but instead about saying, look, this whole process is rigged. This whole process is bad. You should just stay home. And one of the reasons why it's so effective is because it works on a kernel of truth. Our political institutions aren't perfect. Our democracy in the United States isn't healthy. And so you take that and what ends up happening is that it lowers turnout. And when turnout is low for amongst these targeted groups, what we know is that that's really bad for Democrats and it's really good for Republicans. So it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a political gaslighting and it's very, very effective uh, if we think about it. All right. So I want to um, ask all three of you just to, if you have, you know, um, pet theory is probably the wrong way to put it. But uh, I think everybody, you know, as we get close to the election, people who cover politics and think about politics, you start thinking, all right, this is 
this is the scenario that I think is important. This is the factor that I think is important. And rather than put any of you on the spot, although, Russell, you're going to go first, uh, I'll, I'll give you mine <laughs> so you'll have time to think. Um, I, I actually now do think, and this is not any kind of unique to me theory that a lot of other people are talking about it, but young voters, especially young voters in swing states, I think are going to be uh, a big, big factor and, and maybe even a little bit of a surprise factor. Um, 51% of registered voters between the ages of 18 and 34 say they are extremely or very enthusiastic to, to vote in 2020. In 2016, that number was just 30%. Uh, there's like lots of other things that I can cite uh, as these early votes come in. Uh, it does seem as though... And I think people initially thought because Biden was an old candidate and unexciting to to young people candidate, uh, the kind of person who doesn't have that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders kind of crackle and and sense of change that uh, young voters were going to stay away. I think that's becoming clear now that they're not going to stay away uh, and and that they may play a a bigger role this in this cycle than they have in uh, at least the last two presidential cycles. So that's my pet theory that actually, if in fact Biden can put this thing away on election night, it it may be because the young voters who are also a little bit more adaptable. I mean, you know, if they have to find the Dropbox, if they have to figure out how the, you know, how to register online, if they have to do something they've never done before, well, they, they're not stuck in ingrained patterns either. So I don't know, Russell, do you have a, a working hypothesis about what this election is going to boil down to? Well, one thing I think uh, is going to be critical is uh, how the whole voting in the pandemic plays out with the way that different states have um, expanded access, uh, you know, or in some cases, um, you know, uh, in Texas, for example, I think there's a county, you know, that's larger than the size of Connecticut, where there's only one physical location you can drop uh, your ballot off. Um, if, if you want to, you know, put your absentee ballot uh, into the box in person. But I think, uh, you know, that's going to be a key factor is the way that voting has really been, uh, you know, opened up in a way that it hasn't before. And, you know, does that increase turnout across the board? Does it only increase turnout among, you know, certain populations more than others? Um, You know, but in Connecticut, for example, you know, it's never been easier to vote. And uh, I'm most curious as to how that's going to uh, translate into, you know, what the turnout looks like on election day. You know, theoretically, if you're Uh, you know, opening these things up to everybody in Connecticut, for example, you know, Republicans and Democrats and unaffiliated voters all got ballots. So, uh, or all got the opportunity to request absentee ballots. So, um, you know, theoretically, you know, there there wouldn't be one group that would benefit more than the other. But I think just in practicality, um, you know, to your point on the younger voters, um, you know, that might be something that, you know, a younger voter who maybe wouldn't otherwise have known, okay, where's my polling place? You know, how do I get there? You know, what are the races on the ballot? But if they get a thing in the mail that says, hey, you know, just fill this out and request your absentee ballot. I think that that's going to boost turnout across the board, but uh, maybe particularly more among, uh, you know, certain populations that could help, uh, you know, one candidate or the other. And and maybe that becomes the determining factor that sort of, uh, you know, is is what leads to one candidate winning on Election Day. All right. Uh, Kevin, you're up next. Do you have a hypothesis? Well, my hypothesis is that... um, People are exhausted by Donald Trump and uh, a a vast coalition of of people who just uh, are, are part of that majority that that disapproved of his conduct in office uh, will make themselves felt. I think the turnout is going to be uh, historic. Uh, you saw that in 2018. 
I, I think that if we can all see things have gotten worse since 2018, so that will encourage or prompt more people to vote. And I have to, I just have to disagree with Leah on this. <laughs> I wish there were more Trump, a shy Trump voters, because I find that Trump supporters generally just won't shut up. I wish, uh, <laughs> I wish they would, I wish they would just stop talking about him so much and trying to justify uh, the, the, uh, the uh, lethal, noxious things that he's done in the last four years. Um, um, you know, yeah, I, I would say that, you know, Leah mentioned tra the Trafalgar poll. That's that guy's theory. And he nailed the electoral vote in 2016. So people pay attention to him. But he he's the one. Yeah, pushing pay the attention. you know, and Gene Dixon used to predict every year <laughs> that the president of the United States would would die sometime during the year in the National Enquirer. I mean, I just, you know, I know, I know that with Trafalgar, there are everyone. That's what that's what Trump supporters point to. I'm not going to let it. I'm not going to let it shake my theory uh, that has that has come together over the last four years. And I, I do, I really believe that the 2018 elections uh, pointed the way forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, Leah, I tend to believe, Kevin, that there's sort of another kind of voter depression, to use that term. And that's the, the group of people who, you know, I mean, only 20 percent of the uh, people in America think that the country's going in the right direction. That's a pretty low number. And I think there are a lot of former Trump supporters who are almost literally depressed. You know, this just isn't what they were bargaining for uh, and and that they, you know, they they may not turn out either. They, you know, not because of an affirmative act to depress them, but because they just are depressed. But yeah, Leah, you get to wrap things up. Give us your uh, your theory of the election. Sure. And I think that's that wouldn't be surprising. Right. That would actually be the you know, what the polls are telling us, what everything that's happening right now, right on from, you know, the again, the polling, the early turnout, these like massive numbers, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, urban rebellions and riots that are happening in streets. All of these things kind of lend themselves uh, to this, uh, to the greater idea and this greater theory that Americans are really pissed off at the president, right? And that's supposed to show up in the polls. What I'm concerned about is that it did show up in 2016, right? Even with a historically unpopular, too unpopular president, uh, presidential candidates, what we saw is, uh, saw is that Hillary Clinton still won the popular vote. She won it by a huge margin. And yet, we still have a Donald Trump, in part because our democracy and our de democratic institutions are fundamentally broken. So this idea that demographics and the idea that, you know, our, this is destiny, that this can happen, is one that I think part of what history allows us to do is say we should have a contingency or we should see have a contingency plan or see which way we're going. Now, with that, all that being said, again, I think right now one of the things that we can chalk up to this idea of this massive, massive turnout, early turnout, is again, that young people are really, really angry and really upset um, as are Democratic voters and fired up, not necessarily about Joe Biden, although that does matter, but really fired out about um, holding the president accountable, right? This is part of what elections are about. And at this point, what it comes down to is, you know, who has the best turnout and who has the best turnout in strategic states across the country. That's all that matters at this point. All right, so we're going to take a little break here. We'll be back with this terrific panel uh, on The Wheelhouse right after this.
And we are back. This is The Wheelhouse, uh, and we've got a great panel for you today. Uh, joining us are Kevin Rennie, Hartford Grand columnist, former state lawmaker, now co-host of Face the State. Uh, Russell Blair is content editor at the Hartford Current, and uh, Leah wright Rigger. I'm being told on Slack we may need to update your title, Leah. I've got you as assistant professor of public <laughs> policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, author of The Loneliness, Loneliness of the Black Republican, which, by the way, is not a biography of Jonathan Wharton, uh, although... <laughs> Uh, and, uh, so do we have your title, right? Is that correct? So actually I am the Harry Truman professor of American history at Brandeis university. So, <laughs> so it's like a little bit of a promotion, being, not even close <laughs> to being correct and much, much bigger promotion. Uh, congratulations. Drinks are on Leah. We can't go out for drinks anyway. Well, and it's wonderful <laughs> that there is a Harry Truman professor. Right. And it's oh, wonderful absolutely. that it's you, Leah, but it is, it is just, that's great that there is a Harry Truman professor. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Talk, thank you. We want to talk a little bit about the vote here in Connecticut uh, and to get things going. There's no way to get no better way to get things going than Frankie Graziano. This is uh, our reporter, Frankie Graziano, in this terrific special CPTV did called The Vote. Uh, and he is talking to uh, voters. He, Frankie is like extraordinarily good at just sort of walking up to complete strangers and getting them talking to him. So here's what uh, they said to him. Are you voting absentee this year? Yes, How are you I am vote? voting absentee. What was the process like for you? Was it a, a new process? Is it something you've done before? Um, I've done it. I've done it in the past. I did it in 2016, um, and then most recently in 2019. So they sent us. They sent us the absentee ballot because we're already registered with the town of Killingly. So it's just literally sitting at in my kitchen right now till we get closer to election day. Then once that happens, we'll fill it out and send it in. I plan on voting on election day at, at the polls. I did get absentee ballot, but I'm more inclined to fit to vote on election day just definitely absentee voting you're voting absentee yes why are you voting absentee ballot this year i'm just trying to be safe with COVID and everything i try to take it seriously and um you know i trust the system and that it'll work and all right. So, um, Russell Blair, this is something you alluded to in the in the previous segment. But I mean, obviously, we're seeing a scale up unlike anything we've seen before. The secretary of state's office essentially sent out the application for an absentee ballot, which is not an absentee ballot. It's an application uh, to essentially everybody. Uh, and. You know, there, there are, I mean, anything that big and that complicated, and as we also suggested in the earlier segment, some of it devolves down to the 169 towns. But uh, so how's it going so far? Well, I think, uh, you know, so far uh, we've seen the town clerks handle this task uh, pretty well. Uh, you know, there's been some state money that has flowed to these cities and towns um, to hire some extra workers. Um, as Kevin mentioned before, I think that uh, some town clerks have gotten creative, you know, where they've, uh, you know, closed offices early to dedicate more time to processing these ballots. Um, you know, I'll say from my own example, uh, you know, I got my application, uh, you know, pretty timely. I sent it in. I got my ballot back, uh, you know, about as soon as they could start sending them out. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, I mailed it, mailed it in. You can check online to see it's been received, um, you know, so from from my standpoint, uh, you know, everything went well, but, you know, there have been some hiccups that we've uh, reported on along the way, uh, you know, ahead of the uh, primary election um, earlier this year, um, you know, where there, there were some ballots that uh, got sent out late because of a mix up, uh, you know, involving the, the mail vendor that the Secretary of State's office was using. Uh, you know, there were some also some issues in a couple of towns, including Vernon, where there were people that were um, getting the wrong ballots. Um, but, you know, overall, I don't think we've heard of any 
you know, massive, uh, you know, instances of, of, you know, thousands of ballots not arriving or, or people, uh, you know, requesting them and not receiving them. Uh, you know, I'll be curious to see kind of what happens here in the home stretch of, of this week, because uh, at this point, um, I think Secretary of the State Denise Merrill said it yesterday and I saw Governor Lamont tweeted it this morning. They're telling people, you know, at this point, you really should rely on those drop boxes and, and put your ballot in the drop box instead of sending it through the mail because they can't guarantee that it'll arrive in time on election day. And while some states, uh, you know, let ballots that arrive after election day be counted in Connecticut, the ballots need to be there, uh, you know, in, in the town clerk's office or the registrar's office um, on election day for them to be counted. So that's one thing that um, I think will be interesting to see after the election, you know, is there a significant number of ballots that uh, arrived too late and, and what led to that? Um, you know, one other instance I'll mention uh, that I just remembered too, there was a, a case in Enfield where there were a couple hundred ballots that uh, it appeared, and this was for the primary, were, were mailed by the voters in time, but for some reason uh, didn't end up in the hands of election officials in, until weeks after the election. So I think that's something that, you know, I'll be keeping an eye out for and looking for, but so far, I, you know, haven't heard of any big widespread issues that, that have been reported. Uh, Kevin, uh, I know you have things to say about this. I, I just do want to observe that in our long lifetimes. This is kind of like the death of Connecticut absentee ballot journalism as we knew it, right? <laughs> I mean, for years it was kind of like, oh, well, Marilyn Moore won the on the machines. Let's open up the absentee ballot. Oh, <laughs> yes, Joe Gannon yes, won. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's what we, when you say absentee ballot to somebody who's been involved in Connecticut politics for decades, that w- that was the mental image that came up. It was like, yes, oh, you say this, you say this election's going until December. Right. Oh, how many? did Minnie Gonzalez actually have in terms of absentee ballots? Oh, it's a very different outcome. But, you know, by generalizing it, we've sort of changed the whole scale of this thing. But what do you see here in Connecticut? Are there trends uh, that already interest you? I think more than 20 percent of the state has now voted. Yeah, I will be. I'm dropping my absentee ballot off today at the uh, designated box. And I know that my vote for Joe Biden is going to count the same as Melania Trump's vote for Joe Biden. So <laughs> I I have confidence in the he's, system. He's been saving that one up. Um, um I, I know I I had an unusual experience because when I was elected to the state senate in 1994, uh, on election night I was ahead by two votes and one of the towns in the district had there were four towns in Connecticut that they used uh, uh, paper, uh, the kind of ballots we have now in, uh, I guess we'd call them paper computer ballots, that um, uh, as an experiment to see which kind we, we might use in the future. And uh, so when I had a recount, they had to go through every paper ballot in uh, in South Windsor in that, in that case. And it took a, a recount takes with with this number of paper ballots it takes a very long time yes um so uh, states that have uh, if there are states that have to be recounted it it's going to take a while because uh because you have to do it one ballot at a time yeah so uh, you know leah in a way what we're seeing here in connecticut uh 
is it's a state where partly because of who's in control and partly, I think, because of the ethos of the state. And I don't think there's much question that the goal of election administration here is to have as many people as possible vote, um, which is not the goal everywhere else. Somebody, I think it might have been Russell, was talking about the places in Texas where there's one drop box for an area bigger than Connecticut. By the way, the a higher court overruled the lower court on that last night. Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, appears to be getting his way. Uh, I think it's probably almost too late to set up those extra drop boxes anyway. But uh, but maybe you sort of com- comment a little bit on the, you know, uh, the ethos uh, of one state over another. Here in Connecticut, um, the more the merrier seems to be the attitude. It does seem to be, I think, the attitude. And right now we're using absentee ballots as kind of a proxy for this idea of expanding democratic franchise, right? Um, but... With that said, you know, I, I kind of feel like I'm the Debbie Downer here today, <laughs> but you know what? That means I'm doing my job. Um, but I do think one of the things that we should explore is why doesn't Connecticut have early voting, right? Mm-hmm. So we use absentee ballots as a proxy for early voting. But one of the things that we're, we're seeing is that Connecticut, I believe, is one of 12 states in the entire country that doesn't have um, early voting and early balloting. And I think this would be something really to to explore. And I know the state has explored it before. In fact, there was a vote that was taken a year ago um, on this very issue. And it's something that continues to plague us in terms of why are we not doing this? Why are we one of a dozen states not doing this? Um, If we talk about, you know, wanting to really be at the forefront of expanding the franchise and making sure, right, that we are in a healthy democracy, that everyone has access to the vote, one of the things that we can do is, is provide other options, including early voting, for uh, for doing exactly that, um, and including having lots of drop boxes, having lots of access, you know, that would have been really great during a pandemic where it really could have mattered and made a difference. Right. I mean, I think well, we are, Russell, uh, who, Kevin, is that you about to speak it, up? It is. It's, uh, I just wanted to, to point out that in 2014, there was a constitutional amendment on the ballot uh, to yep. uh, to to widen the opportunity for uh, for ways to vote and to that would have allowed early voting and and uh, more absentee ballot voting and it was defeated and you know this is this is a very democratic state so that wasn't republicans defeating that amendment yeah, I think it, was, it needs to be sold. I mean, in fact, we could just play the tape of what uh, Leah just said uh, as a PSA, and I think you can sort of sell yeah. it better. But I, I think we well, I know, one- but I, I notice, for instance, Chris Murphy on Twitter bemoaning what Connecticut's uh, constrained, what he sees as Connecticut's constrained uh, methods of voting. In 2014, he wasn't running for anything. He he had plenty of time, and play, he's a prolific fundraiser. He didn't do anything to get that amendment passed. (laughs) Yeah, I think one thing that'll be curious is, you know, does this generate a new push to do this? And, and, you know, as Kevin pointed out, it's a very complicated process in Connecticut to make changes to this. Um, You know, I believe, you know, the legislature has to pass it by, I think it's a three-fourths margin in both chambers. And it has to go to a constitutional amendment to be approved by the voters. But I would think that you know, if something like that uh, was on the ballot, you know, in, in the next, you know, four years or something like that, and, and this experience went well for people, there might be more uh, public sentiment to do it. But to the point that Kevin made earlier, I think a lot of Connecticut voters, you know, even in 2014, when they hear expanded absentee ballots, they're thinking of things like you guys mentioned in, you know, Bridgeport, where they find a, you know, mysterious bag of ballots on election day, or, you know, instances where, you know, an election goes one way, and then, they count the absentee ballots and it turns out somebody else is the winner. But I think if 
uh, you know, this experience is, is convenient for people and, and there aren't any major issues that you could see a renewed push to do that. But, you know, that will take time and, and it might still be another four or six years before we actually see any real you know, changes for the future for, for voting in Connecticut. Right. I think Connecticut is one of three states that has a constitutional barrier to early voting uh, so that that does make it a, a bigger problem. And by the way, Russell, the discovery of the mysterious bag of absentee ballots in Bridgeport, that's like the running of the bulls in Pamplona. It's a civic <laughs> ritual. You know, it's a it's a cherished civic ritual. You wouldn't want yes. it to go away. So but that, um, that year they added the make a uh, 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 Creating ballots on the copy machine to go along with the ballots in was the it, was uh, that twenty ten? I can't remember. Yeah, I think it was twenty ten. Um, so, um, real quickly, we're gonna have to do some like hot takey stuff uh, on the races here. <laughs> so, Kevin, while uh, uh, you have the floor, you know, I mean, Rosa Delora has never been in a tough race since she no. got uh, to Congress in I think nineteen ninety or maybe eighteen ninety. I can't remember, <laughs> but um, but she she has an opponent who's self funding. Uh, the 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 spending is about a dollar for dollar match in that race between uh, Rosa DeLauro and Margaret Stryker. The um, the television ads are all over the place uh, with Rosa's purple hair. Um, you know, I don't know. I, mean, I, I realize that this is probably still not a very competitive race, but we are at least seeing a different kind of race in that district. We are. And now we're seeing uh, independent groups coming in on behalf of Rosa DeLauro. I saw one. Uh, saw an ad last night. Uh, one reason they may be concerned is that their uh, the third congressional district has a lot of colleges and uh, they're they're not able to get on college campuses to uh, to do their normal campaigning and making sure that college students are registered and are voting. And there's some concern among Democrats that that reliably democratic uh, group of voters may not show up this year in the third congressional district, rather they may show up at home where they live. And, uh, and yet even with that, you know, an, a, 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 an even amount of money spent by the two candidates in a district that that's democratic is, is uh, Rosa Delora should, should, should calm down. Right. <laughs> uh, no. This is not a year. This is not a year when a Connecticut Democratic member of Congress is going to be defeated. That has not happened since 1984. Right. And and um, we should say that probably the more competitive race, and we've talked about it a lot on the wheelhouse, is the fifth. Uh, there's PAC money coming in for David X. Sullivan, who is the challenger uh, to Johanna Hayes. Um, you know, Russell, uh, one question that I have is, are there reasons not to agree with Kevin Rennie. I mean, there are no, almost never are reasons not to agree with Kevin Rennie. But specifically, you know, you look at this and it looks like with Trump at the top of the ticket and not a whole lot of really other compelling stuff going on here and the huge disparity in the absentee ballots, the Democratic absentee ballots coming in are like way ahead of not only the Republicans, but even the unaffiliateds. You know, this looks like kind of a landslide year. Um, on the other hand, there are, I mean, one little odd little undercurrent is the police, uh, particularly police unions, are very, very actively campaigning against uh, Democratic state legislators here. I don't know. Do you see anything that kind of argues against a Democratic landslide? I, I think that, you know, there are maybe some spots, you know, where Republicans are, tr are trying to latch on to certain issues. Uh, you know, you mentioned the police accountability bill at the state level. Um, you know, but to talk about a couple of these congressional races, you know, one thing I think that has totally upended campaigning this year, obviously, is 
you know, the pandemic. And in some ways, maybe that works out for someone like Margaret Stryker in, in the third district against Rosa DeLauro because she is, you know, her strategy is kind of blanketing uh, the airwaves with TV ads, sending out a lot of mailers. Um, you know, that's something you can easily do in a pandemic. But someone like David X. Sullivan, who's running against Johanna Hayes in the fifth district, um, you know, he's underfunded compared to what she's raised. And he's somebody who would probably benefit from the types of retail campaigning that you could do if there wasn't a pandemic where you're knocking on doors, you're going to events, you're having, you know, barbecues and things like that and, and trying to get out there and and to meet as many people as possible. And that hasn't been hasn't been as, as possible this year. And, and we've seen that, too, at the state level. Um, you know, I would think that, you know, we, we can't forget that Republicans did pick up seats in the state legislature in, in 2016. So even with Trump at the top of the ticket, Republicans made gains um, in the General Assembly. But then in 2018, we saw the blue wave come and we saw, uh, you know, some Democrats win in some, Repu you know, districts that have been Republican for 100 plus years. And, and I think, you know, based on everything we've seen, it looks like it's going to be trending more in that direction. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, Republicans have, have focused on certain issues, including uh, the police accountability bill. But I just think in a presidential year and based on what we saw in the midterm election, it's going to be very hard for a lot of these down ballot Republicans. So last quick topic here, and we're, we're a little short on time. But uh, so J.R. Romano uh, seems to be prepared to uh, end his time as Republican state chairman uh, here in Connecticut at the end of this cycle. Either that or somebody told him to be prepared to end his time as Republican state chairman. One or the other jumped or pushed. We don't necessarily know. But, you know, this, uh, Lee, I'm going to go to you right now just because there's a larger question here, which is uh, that imagine that there are landslides in places like Connecticut. Imagine that there's a, a big blue wave for Biden. The Republican Party is probably going to have to rebrand and reorganize itself. I mean, J.R. Romano might not be the only state chairman who goes someplace else. But, uh, you know, just give me your just a general take. How, how does the Republican Party comma, assuming it needs to, comma, um, create a new version of itself? So I think one of the things that you do is that you distance yourself from the person who has been the standard bearer of the of the party for, you know, the last four years, and that's Donald Trump. You know, one of the things that strikes me about the striker ads running against uh, Rosa DeLauro is that they're very Trumpy ads that talk a lot about stuff that most people in Connecticut, but especially people in those districts, don't really care about. Um, you know, so, you know, when we talk about things like, oh, there are riots and stores are being, da, 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 that, that's not happening in Connecticut. That's not really happening in a way that affects people on the ground. But we also see that this happens every couple of years that this happens where Republicans get together and they say, we need to, you know, come up with a new identity and one that defines ourselves. And they really do come up with some good plans. What ends up happening, though, they generally go in the complete opposite direction of what's necessary to, you know, finesse a rebirth. And so I would really take that to mind. I would really keep that in mind and, and consider that, you know, the, Demo the, the Republican Party in Connecticut, if it wants to pick up votes and if it wants to, you know, um, rebrand itself, has to do so with, it in, uh, with the image in mind of who Connecticut people are, who Connecticut voters are, what they stand for and what they believe in. And that often is at, uh, very much at odds with what the National Republican Party represents. All right. We're going to have to break here just because I screwed up the clock. Uh, we'll have to hold uh, our thoughts about J.R. Romano to a future day. Uh, and we'll be back with a little bit more analysis and a little bit of Festivus after this.
We're back. A few quick thank yous. If it seems like this whole show is going quite swimmingly, that is very much due to the work of the next two people. I mentioned Kat Pastor, who's in the studio, making everything go great, uh, and Katie Tolarski, who has stepped in uh, to produce today's episode. She's the big boss, the head of storytelling and everything else. I don't really know people's titles. Uh, but one reason that she had to do that is that tomorrow, uh, Lucy Nalpathanchel, along with Kalila Brown-Dean, uh, Dan Har, and Jonathan Wharton, are doing an election special. Uh, uh, on uh, CPTV. Uh, it's uh, tomorrow night, 8 p.m. on CPTV, and I believe simulcast on Connecticut Public Radio and streaming and all that stuff. And Matt Dwyer, who's our usual producer, is doing all that. Wow, we don't have much time left. So, um, so very quickly here, uh, just uh, for the holidays, uh, we had a little announcement from Ned Lamont uh, and actually from Luke Bronin in a, in a way over the last couple of days. Let's hear it. Hartford is a, um, a red alert zone, and I think... Uh Mayor Broden probably made the right call there. Um, every mayor is going to make up uh, their mind for themselves. I think you heard last week that, you know, in the governor's residence, uh, we're going to lead by example there. As uh, much as I love Halloween, this is not the year that we're going to do it at the residence. That's it. Cancel the kitchen scraps for lepers and orphans. No more merciful beheadings. And call off Christmas. All right, Christmas hasn't been called off. Don't worry, that was just the sheriff of Nottingham. He gets mad about this stuff. Hey, real quick, Russell. So we got we got a kind of a scary number yesterday. It was the four point one percent number, and uh, I have to do a quick correction. By the way, last week I said Connecticut was kind of middle of the pack on testing. Josh Jabal wants you to know that Connecticut is consistently in the top five on testing. But what the testing showed this time was four point one percent, which is unusually high. Uh, so Russell, it kind of looks like Ned Lamont may have to strengthen his his arm a little bit uh, in terms of trying to control stuff here. Any any early ideas about what that might turn out to look like? Well, one thing that uh, the governor's been talking about in the past couple of days is looking at restaurants that are, in effect, basically operating as bars. Um, you know, we've written a couple of stories about ones that have been shut down. He shared a video on uh, Twitter yesterday of, you know, basically what was a nightclub in Bridgeport that was totally operating as a nightclub. So I think that's one area um, where it seems like he's already indicated he wants to take some steps as to kind of uh, tighten up on these restaurants that are letting people stand around in the bar area, go up to the bar and order drinks. And obviously bars have been closed since March and, and Lamont wants to keep it that way. All right. So we've got three minutes left to do feats of strength and airing of grievances. So I give each about, about, about 45 seconds. Kevin Rennie, you go first. What have you got for us? It is the 45th anniversary this week of the original broadcast of Chuckles Bites the Dust on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Oh. So if you if you want to uh, lift your spirits, I think it's on YouTube. It's certainly on Hulu. Chuckles Bites the Dust, I think, is generally regarded as the greatest situation comedy episode ever created in the world. It has the single greatest comic take in the world. I mean, just all the stuff that she's doing to stifle her laughter and stuff is just completely amazing. Uh, all and right, what uh, came before it was great, too. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Leah, how about you? Feet of strength or air of grievance? So I'm going to do a feat of strength, but I'm going to do two. I know we don't have a lot of time, but the first one is a feat of strength for myself because I just had a baby, and I oh. think that deserves a oh, round yeah. of applause. Um, but while I'm here, I also want to give a shout out to two organizations that I think are doing tremendous work. The first one is Black Voters Matter that's run by Latasha Brown. They are doing, you know, yeoman's work out there right now. And the other one is the Black Girl Freedom Fund, which is an economic a kind of uplift platform. I think they're doing really exciting things. They deserve to be followed. They deserve to be supported. 
All right, Russell, you uh, get to clean up for us. Um, I hate to end on a grievance, but my grievance <laughs> is uh, these private youth football leagues that are continuing to operate. We just heard the clip there of Lamont, you know, saying, oh, it's not safe for kids in Hartford to go trick or treating. But there are Hartford uh, students that are playing in these sort of unauthorized youth football leagues. And I'd like to see, you know, the state and, and cities kind of crack down on that more. I'll go lickety split. Uh, CT Liberty Rally has been the organizing force for people who don't believe COVID is a problem, object to any kind of government controls, want to show up with no mask at supermarkets. Uh, they use Facebook to organize their events. Facebook shut them down this week. Uh, I consider that to be a feat of strength. Uh, but it's a real feat of strength to guest host the show uh, and to follow in the <laughs> footsteps of Lucy, who does such a great job every week. Uh, so <laughs> I, I want to thank this panel for making me look so great because they are terrific. So thanks to you, Kevin, Russell, Leah. Thanks to Kat and Katie. We'll be back next week.